Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5555. Thank you for joining this latest installment of the Gist of Freedom. I'm Roy Paul, uh, your guest host for this edition. We are joined by Attorney Dwayne Nash, scholar of race, uh, law, criminal justice policy, African American history. Quite impressive, pursuing his PhD at Northwestern University in an interdisciplinary program in African American studies and performance studies. His dissertation is titled. Uh, Prototypes of Racial Profiling, Forgotten History of Stop and Frisk in the 1960s New York. Um, and his research really goes on and on. He studied at Boston College School of Law um, and got his undergraduate of Middlebury College, uh, used to be a former prosecutor, and is going to talk to us really about all things law. One of the things we try to do on the Gist of Freedom for our frequent listeners is to educate you, not just to give you information that I think or that we think you would be useful uh, but also to educate you. So we don't assume that you know what's going on in the world um, of law or African-American history present day. So we try to give you as much information as we can as if this was a one-on-one class. So, Mr. Nash, thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you. So I want to kind of give people a little perspective on your background and who you are. So if you can take just a few minutes and talk about uh, not where you were born and raised necessarily, but in terms of your legal career, how that got started, what fueled uh, that uh, to present day. Sure. I I will talk about where I was born and raised because it is important to, uh, and it is linked to my uh, background as a lawyer. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, uh, Crown Heights, and um, in a pretty... Um, racially mixed area. Uh, Crown Heights, when I was growing up, was predominantly um, um, middle-class black and um, middle-class Jewish neighborhood. Uh, I grew up under the Dinkin administration and also the Giuliani administration, so I saw a lot of tension between the two communities, which had, um, prior to the 90s, um, had pretty much um, lived in peace with one another, uh, and uh, certainly uh, had lived together and fought in the civil rights movement. A lot of Jews and blacks um, collaborated to fight in the civil rights movement. So my parents and grandparents um, <clears throat> had very close relationships with uh, Jewish families, particularly Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn. Um, so that's uh, where I grew up, and um, uh I had grandparents from the area that um, were business owners and often frequented the courts. And so as a child, I went to court to hear um, my grandparents um, uh, litigate cases all the time. 
and I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer from such a young age. Um, so that's great. Uh, and, and so, what fuels your your legal theory or beliefs? Yeah. yeah, so my current research is I look at the origins and social impact of racial profiling in urban areas after World War II, particularly the uh, rise of stop and frisk in the early 1960s in New York. Uh, what I'm curious about is what motivated New York State, which was which is a liberal state and um, was under the leadership of a uh, fairly liberal governor, Rockefeller at the time, in the early 60s, what motivated the state and its legislature to pass the law, stop and frisk. And um, particularly, New York has always had a very large black population. It's one of the largest black metropolitan area, uh, the largest um, black population of any metropolitan area in America. How did this large black population respond to the passage of such a law? How did they interpret the law and uh, resist against it um, when the law was enforced uh, in a way that disproportionately impacted the black and Latino communities in the early 60s? So um, I, as a, a law student, uh, became aware of many, many cases where black people had litigated their their um, Fourth Amendment right to be free of from unreasonable search and seizure. And I noticed that a lot of the scholars of the civil rights movement did not speak about the narratives, did not put narratives or write about um, a lot of the struggles that black people had faced uh, in the 60s and, and 50s also, and 40s also, but I'm more interested in the 60s, um, and I'm interested in the 60s because we know that in 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed, um, ending certain types of public accommodation and certain types, certain forms of um, discrimination. Uh, and then in 1965, there was a Voting Rights Act uh, passed, um, allowing um, uh, allowing blacks to vote um, free of any encumbrance. So at this moment, that these two two major Laws were passed to promote um, to promote rights. How is it possible that a state like New York could pass a law that gave police a greater right to stop and search individuals without a warrant on the streets, as well as without probable cause, as required by the Constitution, the Fourth Amendment? So that's what um, I study, and that's what I write about. And I was curious, how did this come about? Um, <clears throat> And uh, as a prosecutor in the in 2000 from 2003 until 2008, I saw more and more people of color and Latinos um, uh, and poor people funneled through the criminal justice system because of police enforcing the stop and frisk law. And I wanted to know um, the origin of this law. Mm-hmm. And, and so what is your synopsis based on your research and what you found? I'm sure you've interviewed a lot of people. Uh, what is your final synopsis on the Stop and Frisk Law? And now that it is technically outlawed in New York City, um, what, what is someone's recourse if they find themselves a victim of it now? 
Well, um, stop and frisk is still law. It's still constitutional. So I want to clarify that the federal case that decided, um, that heard New York's um, New York City Police Department's New York State, really, uh, the police department's enforcement of stop and frisk. The federal case ruled or stands for, uh, um, does not overrule stop and frisk. It still says stop and frisk is constitutional. It is still a good law. <clears throat> um, the Supreme Court has never taken up the case um, against how New York City police officers enforce stop and frisk. What the federal case said two years ago um, its ruling is that how police officers and um, the practice of enforcing stop and frisk, the police practice and policy was unconstitutional, but the law itself is still good. So um, stop and frisk still stands. And, um, and uh, the, the federal case had put in some, um, put in various practices which would perhaps mitigate the racial, the the type of um, the type of racial uh, racialization of enforcing the law. So the there are monitors to look at how New York City police enforce stop and frisk if they're enforcing it more against people of color, Latinos, um, and and perhaps even people that are poor. But um, it's still allowed. Uh, to it, it's still an authorized right of the police. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's kind of bounce around with a couple of topics because um, I want to try to get some other things in. Um, what is uh, going on for those who may not be aware with the controversy surrounding Eric Holder? Oh yes. So just um, believe it was Tuesday, two days ago, um, just the other day, um, the. Uh, Eric Holder, our Attorney General, has ruled that the Department of Justice is not going to pursue its case against George Zimmerman filing a federal case, a civil rights act, taking a civil rights action against George Zimmerman for the murder of Trayvon Martin in, um, two, in February 2012. And that came as a blow to the black community and made many, many um, people of color in this country. It was um, the black population's last hope uh, was for this case to be picked up by the federal government. And uh, it was the last hope for large black populations uh, to see some form of justice. You see, um, just traditionally, black people in this country have been uh, suspicious of local courts and state courts enforcing laws and prosecuting people for um, murdering and, and, and discriminating against people of color, particularly law enforcement of um, abusing people of color. And turning first to the state courts um, for some redress often, often was met with a silent ear. The lady justice um, did in fact not have a blind eye to black rights. Um, in fact, almost always uh, denied black people recourse in this case. And so black people have always turned to the federal government to seek some sort of redress. And here in 2014 and 2015, we expected the federal government with a black attorney general and also 
uh, black president to have a racial justice agenda and to take this case very seriously and um, and investigate it. And unfortunately, the Department of Justice found that there was no no means there was no means to prosecute Zimmerman uh, under the law. And from your legal perspective, why, why is that? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't think that every inch of information regarding the case has been released to the public. So it is possible, I suppose, that the public may not know certain aspects of a case. Is it more important that Eric Holder takes this case to trial, even if he may lose, based on whatever the criteria is in the law to satisfy public opinion, or, or would you want him to analyze the information, some of which the public may not know, and go from a legal perspective in terms of pursuing the case? Well, as a legal expert, I would say, um, and as a former officer of the of the court and of law, uh, I would say any prosecutor um, would, would, would answer like this, that they're not going to go forward with a case unless they can prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. <clears throat> and so um, Eric Holder is uh, charged with following the law. And if he believed that he could not prosecute Zimmerman in, in this case, then um, agents, of, uh, agents of the Department of Justice uh, should not have gone forward. My point uh, as, a, as a legal scholar would be how to go forward with the case. And then he had two ways to go forward in the case. Uh, both are perhaps difficult, would be difficult to make. The first would be to demonstrate that there was negligence or recklessness on the part of Zimmerman um, when, he, um, went against, when, when he actually killed Trayvon Martin. And the other, other case would be to bring a civil action against George Zimmerman uh, under a hate crime, charging him with a hate crime, saying that, and, and, and for that, um, a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor, would have to prove willfully that uh, Zimmerman had attacked Martin because he was black. Um, I think that that part, charging the hate crime, is a really difficult thing to prove, to charge him under civil action for negligence or recklessness that led to the death of um, of George Zimmerman. I, I think that there was pretty much uh, a pretty clear case of that. If you recall, when um, when we first heard about the case in, in February of 2012, a lot of the uh, 911 tape was released immediately to the public, and we heard 911 operator telling Zimmerman, "If you're not law enforcement, that you're not." Stay in your car. Do not pursue him. Um, yet we know that Zimmerman took it upon himself to then pursue Trayvon Martin and followed him. Now, we don't have video footage of this, so we don't know actually what, what transpired after he pursued him. Um, and, of course, Florida has a stand-your-own-ground law. Um, but once, but before he initiated contact with Martin, he was told to, in fact, stand his, um, stay in his car and not confront Martin. And so he willfully went uh, toward Martin, and he put himself in harm's way, perhaps, or, or not, or he pursued him simply aggressively 
uh, as an initial aggressor. And I find it hard to believe that federal government could have interviewed independent witnesses um, and um, have, could have evaluated the states, the Florida state's case and the trial transcripts and could not find any, not a scintilla of evidence to bring a federal charge. I, I, I just don't think that the state prosecution was that thorough enough to have covered everything that the federal government couldn't. So, so, so what's your um, assessment as to why Holder did not pursue the case ultimately? Well, well, he's he's also on his way out, um, and uh, would I, I don't know if he really would want a legacy to be associate his legacy to truly be associated with this. I I I, I can't speak to that. I and as you pointed out, I don't know what the federal government knows. I only know what. Um, I've been able to read through various um, articles and also um, I did go down to see part of the case uh, in Simford. So I, I was present in there as an eyewitness to what was going on. And my opinion um, as a lawyer is that um, I think that a federal case could have been brought forward. So I am perplexed why um, the federal government thinks that it couldn't bring a civil action against um, mm-hmm. And to and to your point that you alluded to, what do you think Eric Holder's legacy will be? Well, I, I do know that he's a brilliant, brilliant individual, and uh, so his legacy as a brilliant attorney will will precede him. I also think that he's um, a um, quite a philanthropic individual, and, um, and I've been told by people that know him that he's a good person. Uh, I think that he will be remembered as um, uh, the attorney general under Obama, and um, I don't think that he will have a a harsh – people will remember him harshly. I I, I think that they will um, not hold him um, in disregard because of his lack of um, uh, racial justice um, um, agenda. Mm-hmm. But looking towards the future, uh, his uh, what seems to be his replacement, Loretta Lynch. What are what are your thoughts on her? Oh, um, I I really don't have I haven't um, formulated an opinion of her. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, the thank you. The Zimmerman case uh-huh. is that something that she can potentially reopen or bring up if she chose to. I I do think that it hasn't, um, I don't think Holder did anything that would preclude her from reopening the investigation. Now, remember when um, it took uh, almost 30 years for the murderer of um, Mega Everts uh, to be brought to justice, so uh, federal charges. So we, we don't have an issue of double jeopardy here charging him. Um, as long as it's a, um, as long as there is a charge that hasn't already been charged against Zimmerman, um, I think the federal a federal prosecution would be okay. Do you think that politically something that's something she might consider, or should consider? I, I think that um, we certainly are in the midst of a movement um, against racial profiling in this country. 
I think there is a serious movement on its way. And I think any, whoever is the next president, whoever is the next head of uh, Department of Justice, should not lock themselves in any corner to um, not go forward and prosecute um, in racial justice cases. So I I think that it would be wise to reopen it in order to um, be responsive to the public and this movement that we are seeing transpire right now. Okay. Uh, moving on I think to certainly the- mainstream I certainly mainstream press like CNN thinks that uh, what's happened in Ferguson is over, thinks that what ha- what had happened with Trayvon Martin is over, that mainstream press often um picks up the murder of a black body by a law enforcement officer or in, in Zimmerman's case a vigilante imposing as a um a public defender. Uh, I think that the mainstream press just picks these up one by one by one and adds them together and then, you know, um, when it dies down, completely says that it's over. But we, people of color, we black people that continue to struggle against this, continue to stand, take a stand and fight, see it as a continuous movement. It has never ended. And um, at one point in time, hopefully very soon, our elected officials, our leaders, our president, um, we'll see that we're still in the midst of a movement. Mm. I was just going to ask you about that because th- th- there seems to be so many ebbs and flows and you turn around one day and there are promises, uh, there, there are hopes and glimmers of hope, and then you turn around and then seems to be so many setbacks. Um, and you're right, the movement is continuing and it's very easy to, to lose hope, but, but legally, um, I, I wonder if many of the issues that we're facing uh, not just as African Americans, uh, but in our society, can be remedied with uh, reforms to our, our legal system. Um, so I don't yeah. know if you've ever given any thought to the kinds of reforms that would be necessary, if not to, if even if it was just to leave even out the playing field a bit. Well, first of all, I do think that we need federal legislation. We need Congress to pass an act to to denounce racial profiling to take away local and federal law enforcement officers' authority to profile individuals based on race. I know they say it is wrong. They, uh, all attorney generals will always say that it's wrong for police to target individuals based on race, ethnicity, and religion post 9-11. Um, but... Uh, there is no actual law in place to say that this is illegal. Specifically, um, we have the Voting Rights Act. <clears throat> we have the Civil Rights Act. We have specific acts that, that were passed 50 years ago. And things are, have not completely, um, these laws have not completely ended the Jim Crow. And so you have um, Michelle Alexander writing her uh very influential book, The New Jim Crow, to to describe how these practices of using race to to oppress, using people's race to oppress of people based on color, using um, class to oppress people based on their social status, and there's no end to it. So we need a specific law in place. Congress needs to actually pass such an act. That's the first thing. 
The second thing I would recommend is that we need to actually evaluate our criminal procedure law. We need to evaluate how the courts conduct themselves and how the courts view police officers' interactions with citizens on the street. This is where my this is what my work does. I look at the encounter before someone is brought into the criminal justice system, before someone is arrested. I look at those encounters between citizens and law enforcement officers. And I and I really want us to challenge the right of police officers, and this is under criminal procedure law, they have procedural rights to stop and question any individual they want and then to search them if they fear that they have a weapon or if they fear that they've committed a crime or if they fear they're going to even commit a crime. This is how stop and frisk operate. Giving police officers this procedural right to stop question and search individuals. This needs to be looked at more seriously. And there needs to be laws in place to check that, these powers of police. Remember, police work for us. And we need to, the community really needs to start acting like police must give us customer service, proper customer service. If it was a business we would not fraternize, with, we would not deal with businesses where we go to the teller and the teller is rude to us. We would walk out. We would make a complaint. That teller would be fired. Well, it's the same thing with police. We should not tolerate police officers using the type of language, using pejoratives, uh, or even a form of force at all. A police officer should be afraid of the citizen um, Afraid of citizens' complaints, and that's where we're. That's what we need to to do. Hmm. Wow, that's a very interesting coming from a, a former um, officer of the court. Um, a former prosecutor, yes. Um, yeah. Well, remember, just because um, I I represented people in the state of New York and um, prosecuted criminals for committing crimes against citizens of New York doesn't mean that I believe that citizens, um, that criminals also are citizens. They are citizens too. People that commit crime also have rights. And it is if we can protect the rights of even the least, the least culpable to the most culpable person, if we, if we protect the rights of those, then democracy truly is a shining beacon then we really do have democracy because that means that democracy matters. If even the individuals that commit crimes are protected through due process of law, that they have the, the right to an attorney, if they have the right to actually be silent, they have the right to know what their rights are, then we really do have a true egalitarian system and a and the creed, the American creed of true democracy, that all men are created equal, even the ones that are guilty of something, <laughs> mm-hmm. then, 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 then we can move forward as a people right. and live now, together. Now, with your research that you're doing now to uh, obtain your Ph.D., are you hoping to move more in a teaching role? 
in the future? Yes, um, I'm actually on the market now. I've uh, done several interviews at universities to teach um, in the areas of history and social sciences and um, sociology, criminology. Um, I am I am I have an affinity for understanding uh, history, the past, because if we don't understand our past then that means explaining the present situation starts from ground zero. We, 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 don't have any, we don't have any basis to explain why things are the way they are today unless we can truly understand what happened yesterday. So the past is always important. And slavery is always important to be remembered. Um, and the advantages and the privileges that people hold today because of the disadvantages of black bodies in the past are important. Mm-hmm. Now, can you tell everyone, for those who may not know, what the 1850s Fugitive Slave Act is and how history may be repeating itself? Well, 1850 Fugitive Slave Act it came about because of a compromise. As, as um, the states were expanding, as the um, original state were expanding and moving further west, um, there was a debate on what would happen to the newly formed states. Would they be slave states or would they be free states? Of course, the North um, wanted more free states because they didn't want um, more slave states and more representation uh, in Congress to be given to the slave states. And ultimately, there was this compromise where... Uh, in order for California to come in as a free state, the southern states that had slavery uh, wanted their right to be able to recapture slaves that had escaped into free territories. And the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 um, made it federal law and made it um, made it the law that in that all states must assist in the return of any escaped slave, no matter where the slave had escaped to. Um, This created, of course, a major problem for the abolitionist movement. And um, what the law also, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, the compromise also did was, not only did it mandate states uh, to which an escaped um, uh, slave had fled, to be returned to the slave master, it penalized it penalized anyone that assisted in um, in helping this slave escape, and anyone who obstructed a slave owner from regaining the um, uh, its uh, prop- his property, the chattel, <clears throat> and that included um, imprisonment and great fines. It made all federal marshals. It compelled all federal marshals to go after any escaped slave whereas before federal marshals could have ignored an escaped slave, and in northern states, federal marshals routinely ignored returning um, slaves back into slavery. Um, but it also did something else, and it created a climate that would ultimately lead to the Civil War um, 10 years later in, uh, in 1860. Because on many occasions, there were mobs, um, white mobs would would develop in these urban areas, in these cities, where there would be a, an, an escaped slave. And if an abolitionist or a white person tried to prevent the return of that slave, 
then sometimes there would be violence where um, mobs of whites would attack other whites that were protecting the slaves. Hmm. How do you remember all this stuff? I'm just kidding. Uh, you mean the history of uh, these laws? It was a bad joke. You you seem to have gone very thoroughly into the question and history of it, and of course you have the background for it. Um, I I just I just found it fascinating that you it kind of came out as if it was water for you. Oh well, uh, thank you. I I I take that as a compliment. Um, I I do find history fascinating, and I think all lawyers are historians because. In order to argue the law and understand the law, you have to understand precedent. And the law is based sometimes on precedent, things that happened in the past, um, and it's based on making policy arguments too, why um, why things should be different, why we shouldn't sometimes follow the law. You know, unjust laws should never be followed. Right. Well, say that. Yeah. Uh, if I can ask you on, on your opinion on something else. Um, there seems to be so many legal issues concerning gay marriage around the country um, and the Supreme Court are making rulings and individual states are making rulings. What do you make um, uh, of the arguments for and against uh, gay marriage and what do you think eventually what we'll head as a country? Well, I think that if you if you look at gay marriage and you see this as discriminating against people uh, based on their privacy, um, their private choices, their familial choices. I, I think you can make a very clear case that this is a civil rights issue, just like, um, uh, just like marriage, interracial marriage is a civil rights issue. People are all human beings, fundamentally the same. And uh, just as it should never have been a crime for a person of color to marry someone who is not of color. Uh, And that law of uh, striking down interracial marriage um, laws um, came about only like 50 years ago. So too, um, I think that this country is moving towards that with gay marriage. People of the same sex uh, have a right to marry whomever they they choose. People have a right to marry whomever they choose, as long as it's not a minor. Um, there shouldn't be a problem, right? Because it's a conscious choice, and um, yeah. So uh, I think the court. I think the court will eventually. Um, well, I think the court has has shown. It's the current court has shown that it is. Um, not going to prevent uh, same-sex marriages. Right. Uh, and, and what do you think um, there, there might be other protections uh, for people who um, happen to be um, uh, gay and lesbian within the legal system? Uh, other protections? Well, one of the things, you know, I looked at, I looked at racial profiling and these stop and frisk phenomena that takes place in urban areas and in major cities where there are large populations of people of color. What I have also in a contemporary, I look at this from a historical perspective. You know, I look at this, what happened in these urban areas 50 years ago. It's fascinating how people resisted and, <clears throat> and fought a good fight against stop and frisk when it was first proposed and enacted. Um, and even back then, 
Um, lesbian and gay, the gay, lesbian, and bisexual, uh, transgendered communities um, had been attacked by police also. And their narrative of being attacked and stopped and searched by police is also something that has, um, has not uh, been written about enough. And it's this past, this history has not been written about enough. Well, um, what that has done is left the floodgates open for, for, for generations and generations of, of gay and lesbians to be stopped, searched, attacked, harassed, arrested uh, by police officers under the color of the law. And we see that happening today in urban areas where youth that have youth are being stopped and searched and when police officers see inside bags several condoms, they arrest these youth in New York City for prostitution. And and, and they are um funneled through the criminal justice system uh and charged with um being uh, alleged prostitutes. So that's 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 some that's a case where stop and frisk has left um young gay and lesbians um, vulnerable to the system as well, to be criminalized by the system. And here, these people are really just um, uh, carrying condoms. And so for trying to protect themselves against STIs and HIV um, or, or simply by carrying condoms because they believe in um, contraceptive practices, uh, now has been criminalized. They fit the profile of a prostitute, and um, I, I, I'm certainly interested in telling that story. Yeah, I've interviewed yeah. several people because of that. Yeah, can you understand why people have become very cynical about our legal process? It seems as if politics plays such a huge role in it. Many things can be enacted with legislation, as you've alluded to, but because of the lack of political will that. Uh, lies within our elected officials. It doesn't seem as if that kind of change will happen unless some mighty move, uh, you know, pushes it in that direction. Um, and, and so, you know, when when sometimes I talk to people who are, and we've had many shows on the Gifts of Freedom about change um, and the relationship between activism, the law, and politics, so many people become very cynical because they say, hey, the politics is not going to do anything. We don't have billions of dollars being thrown at people to do the right thing. What do you think about that? Well, I, I I think that the cynicism is valid in many respects, and mostly because that there are lobbyists out there with lots of money. There's a lot of big money out there that can buy support from our uh, elected officials. Um, so it is a reality that um, the way political campaign and campaign contributions work in this country, that the more money you have, the more influence you can have over creating laws. Um and when we look at laws that um, that protect the interests that protect interests of minorities, I mean small small pockets of society rather than the majority of people in the areas, um, then that's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. I do think that people still count, though, and I know that vote the vote still does matter. So, I mean, to the very the very point that thousands and thousands of people have died, thousands and thousands of people have marched and protested and demonstrated for, for the right to vote 
and to preserve and protect that right for people of color, that um, we do need to petition our elected officials to voice what our concerns are. I mean, the First Amendment right to to pro- peacefully protest so that we make our voices and opinions um, known to politicians so that we can get a redress is important. That's us. that's our First Amendment. You know, it is the First Amendment, right? And it clearly spells that out. So the activism is still important. Bodies and masses of people demonstrating to show how they what they believe and to take a stand in collaboration is still um, is still powerful. And we can have change because of that. Uh, so I, I want people to come away with knowing and listening to your show, knowing that their voice does, in fact, matter. But you must make it matter. And, you know, my, the, the type of history that I write about, protest history, is important to understand because you need to know what, what our activists in the past have done, how brazen they've been to, and creative they've been to preserve fundamental human rights, fundamental dignities, we can still do it. It's not a lost cause. Right. And how for layman people, how can people better understand what their legal rights are, for example, if they're pulled over uh, by a police officer, et cetera? Well, there's, um, you know, the Internet is an amazing uh, tool for people to have. Technology is important, and we have the millennial, we are called the millennial generation, so because we use uh, technology to our advantage. We want, we want immediate access to information, and we have immediate access to this information. So go online. Find out what your rights are. Find out how you can make complaints against police officers, um, and you can make them through calling your your local American Civil Liberties Union uh, chapter. You can call um, the NAACP chapters. You can file complaints through these two major civil liberties organizations. You can also, and you should, file complaints through both. But you you also have a right to go into the precinct um, where you were stopped and file multiple complaints. The complaint with the death sergeant. Demand to see the sergeant on duty. File a complaint and get that person's name. If you've seen someone stopped or you've seen someone harassed by police and you think that it was un- an unwarranted encounter with a police officer, I suggest if there's common courtesy is not given to you uh, during one of these co- uh, encounters, if they were rude, make a complaint for that. Dial 311 and file a complaint as well. Do them all. And um, and then uh, follow up. Hold these municipalities, the police departments, and your local precincts accountable to you and your community. I mean, after all, there have been police um, there have been police precincts that have been shut down because there were far too many complaints. Uh, the um, in, in the case of um, of, of uh, Wilson, Officer Wilson who had shot um, Michael Brown down. Wilson was transferred from a uh, police precinct because 
that precinct had previously been shut down because there were far too many complaints. There were so many complaints and so many lawsuits against that precinct where Darren Wilson came from that the precinct found it no longer economically viable to keep its doors open and so dispersed all those police officers into other precincts and other um and, and thus we, we had um uh Wilson um in in Ferguson where he actually ultimately killed uh, Martin. I'm mean, not Martin, well um Brown, Michael Brown, sorry. Right. Um, before we close, is there any other points that you wanted to add? We can edit the show afterwards when we put it all together. Um, I, I just think that with um, Attorney General Holder going out, I I do think that we need to we need to press the federal government to continue to prosecute and investigate these type of cases. I think we all should write in and and press our and press our attorney generals in our states as well as attorney generals uh federal attorney generals to look at um racial injustice and to investigate not just the murdering of black bodies by law enforcement officers but also to open up investigations about and probes into Un- unlawful police stops, unlawful police stops of cars, um, driving while black is still an important issue. It's still stop. It's still the cause of many people to be pulled over unjustifiably. Stopping and searching individuals and harassing them in the streets is still a major problem. In 2012 alone, over 538,000 people in New York City, New Yorkers, were stopped by police, and only 1% of that large number actually ended in an arrest for some crime. And most of those crimes were low-level crimes. Something like uh, 50,000 people possessed small amounts of marijuana and were arrested as a result of that. So this is shameful. Mm, Yeah. Okay, Attorney Dwayne Nash, it was a pleasure speaking with you for this time. Uh, for those who want to get more information on you, would you like to share uh, a website or other information that uh, showcases your work? Uh, you, you can just find me under Dwayne.Nash um, uh, uh, on Twitter, please, um, so you can follow me. Okay, sounds good. We'll share that information. Dr. Nash on Twitter, yes. Okay, and we'll share that information with the viewers and I will link. Thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, We'll have to have you back on when we talk about legal issues in the future. Okay, thank you very much. All right, bye-bye. Have a good night. Bye-bye.